We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country on which Plant Heroes was recorded, and we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. So I guess in our initial efforts to conserve this species failed almost utterly. Academics say they want to get particular things out of projects. Community, our, our organisation, we had particular goals we wanted to get out and we, we need to align those to get the richness of, of what happened. And we, when we did get things aligned, when we have had things aligned, we've, we've had so much come back to us as well. So um, it's not a one-way street. I would encourage anyone that's working in areas that have an Indigenous aspect to it to contact their traditional owners and, and start a relationship, begin developing that relationship and talk to them, understand you know, who they are, what they need, um, what they can offer, um, because there's a lot they can offer. And yeah, I, I think that's it's vital. So it can be very beneficial for everyone. Put a smile upon your face I want to see you glow So let your essence show Welcome to Plant Heroes. I'm Chantelle, and today I want to take you to the noisy, graffitied edge of the Hume Highway in Melbourne, Australia's second largest city, to talk about a tiny little daisy that has taken decades to understand and try and conserve, but more importantly, represents the value of traditional knowledge and that recognising timelines and goals of researchers, not-for-profits, community and traditional custodians won't always align. But over the decades and many missteps, this little plant has slowly connected people with place and with each other. Oh, Liza, when your head's above the clouds You have this grace and air I long to join you there So I can get above these troubles And see what's more to see I can get above and see what's more I'm to an see I'm an outlaw of So I'll give permission to you to travel our lands And while you're travelling traveling on our land I, um, I pray that bundle watches over you While you're on our country I hope you enjoy our little piece of uh, Merrick Creek and I hope you get a bit of a understanding around it as well. So, yeah. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Are you crying? Yeah, I think it was beautiful what you said. It was lovely. <laughs> it was really nice. I have travelled a lot across Australia, but this is the first time I have sought and been given permission by an elder to visit country. And it was really moving, so I cried. <laughs> With that, I specially acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional custodians of the land I am visiting, Galata Tambor on the Merry Creek. Merry Creek, Merry actually in, um, in Aboriginal means rocky, and it's actually Merry Merry Creek, which means very rocky. Um, and it's, it's an incredibly important um, little creek. It runs into the river and where it meets the Yarra River, the Birrarung, is actually at Dites Falls, another significant location and meeting spot for Kulin Nations groups. I'm Charlie Woolmore and I work at Wurundjeri Corporation, the representative body for the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people. And we advocate for our members and for anything that, that involves or is important to Aboriginal people and particularly Wurundjeri people. The Merry Creek today is bordered by industry, houses and busy, busy roads. But it is still very important 
Winding its way through 70 kilometres of Melbourne, the banks of the Murray hold much of the last 0.1% of the critically endangered volcanic plains grassland, which in turn holds the last three known Melbourne populations of this episode's special plant. Murnong, Microceros capigera, or plains yam daisy. You have probably heard of yam daisy, but that refers to a collection of three species. The yam daisy we are talking about today represents the complexities of conservation. Not just learning about plant ecology, but also patience. Murnong is a, a plant, it's a, a root actually plant, it's a daisy, but the root was a vegetable that was used extensively by all um, the southern tribes of Australia. It's probably the most well-known of the, um, the bush foods, or one of the most well-known of the bush foods um, root vegetables. Maybe some of the other lily pillies and things like that might be sort of better tasted, but yeah, Murnong's an incredibly important species. And what does it taste like? It's oh, hard to describe. I can't think of something like a Western vegetable that you could compare it to. It's sort of like a, a bit like a nutty potato, I suppose. It has a, a very unique flavour, but I'd say if I had to yeah, a nutty, nutty potato. I know there's, apparently there's three types of Murnong species, but I'm not sure if there was um, a, a different name for each species within the, the language. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. That's unfortunately knowledge that's been lost. And this is where that sexy profession, taxonomy, is important. For decades, there has been confusion about what is and isn't a yam daisy species. At one point, there were 20, then one, now three. Sort of. Brian Bainbridge, who has been working to conserve this species with the Merry Creek Management Committee, encountered the confusion firsthand when he started working in the mid-1990s. Victorian herbarium identifies three species, which are the widespread form, Microcerus walteri. That's referred to as the common yam daisy. We've got the Microcerus lanceolata, which is the alpine form, and it has a rhizomatous root system, and so tends to form mats up in the alpine areas. And then species that we worked with was sometimes called the plains yam daisy, and it's Microcerus scapigera and in Australia it tends to be a species of lowland swamps and poorly drained areas and it's regarded as quite a rare species because that habitat type in particular is quite a, a rare one. It's got a skinnier kind of root system. They're kind of small carroty. They're, they're still fleshy but they're not as big and tuberous as the Walterite. It's self-fertile which ironically means it's one of the easier species to grow in nurseries and in gardens because it tends to produce seed even when it's just one plant, whereas the other two forms are not self-fertile. This all seems self-explanatory now, but when Brian started, it was far from clear. So my first contact with the species, I guess, came in the late 90s. We had done a planting of Microcerus scapigera in one of our native grasslands because uh, we, we knew it was culturally significant. We knew it was an uncommon species and we were concerned about the, the known populations that they seemed very small. At that point, 
they decided the populations needed augmentation to help them survive and thought they knew a bit about the ecology of the species. But as the years unfolded, they were surprised at how much there was to learn. Again, and again, and again. It was kind of like a, a living dead kind of thing situation. So we planted um, 20 uh, one year as part of grant application about rare plant reintroductions and planted them as tube stock in what we thought might be okay landscape for them on the edge of some gilgais. Gilgais, by the way, are wet depressions that form semi-permanent moist areas as a result of cracking and shrinking clays. They're associated with Volcanic Plains grassy wetland. And all but a few of those plants died. Um, within six months, we, we looked at them again and there were a few that were surviving. We thought, oh, may, maybe if we try planting 100 next year, maybe we'll get 20 surviving and, and maybe that's a good start. The next year we planted 100 and every one of them died. And the few plants that, that had survived, they eked out for a year or two. They produced a few flowers and they died. And we never had funding really to follow up, um, but we didn't have to tell anyone. Uh, <laughs> because we hadn't been monitoring them closely enough, we didn't really understand why they had died. Of course, it's because we were in a droughty year, droughty decade. When people grew them in gardens, people knew that they would produce abundant seed and there'd be lots of seedlings um, often in the area. But we began to get anecdotal thing that they'd grow well for a few years and then they'd die off. And in the field, we had noticed, um, I think, red-legged earth mites being an issue. The other frustration was the team weren't even sure how many plants there were. In the books, it said that this was a species that flowered in spring in, in our great big floor of Victoria. So we, we'd sort of go looking for them in spring and couldn't find them. And I was getting worried because we're having year after year of drought and these plants from the wetter parts of the landscape seem to be dropping out. So that was it. By the early 2000s, the number of populations and plants was unknown. They couldn't be found easily on surveys. They didn't grow well even in a nursery because they needed to constantly be repropagated, and they certainly didn't survive or recruit well when planted in the field. From this point, Brian realised they needed to be more systematic. So they started with what they knew. We knew that they liked moist conditions, wet conditions. Um, we knew they might be susceptible to insect attack, including introduced um, invertebrate. We knew that they probably were struggling with drought conditions. We also learned at that time that we actually needed to do some investigation of the remnant population to better understand the species. So he doubled down on the team's goal. Uh, our, our goal was that we would have a, um, that the plants would one, survive, um, two, that they would flower and produce seed, and three, that we would begin to see a second generation. That was our goal, was that we would establish a reproducing population at some sites that appeared to be suitable habitat for the species. And started again with tube stock. I wanted us to do this in a more methodical method. So we put 20 plants in, I think it was, might have been 25. Each of them 
in a patch of five. So we're being really methodical now and okay, rather than trying to create a little natural drift of them, we put a chicken wire cage over them because we were aware that grazing could be an issue of trying to get them established. We had a kangaroo population, so they were actually planted into the bottom of gilgives rather than on the edge of gilgives. As soon as we planted them, within a few weeks, we had drenching, drenching rain, and all of the plants were completely inundated by water. <laughs> so, but a few of the plants had produced some flowers and did produce some seeds. Six months later, we couldn't find any of them. I think that we thought, oh, well, that, that had all died. But in autumn the next year, we actually realised there were like several little small seedlings in one of the patches. So one of them had actually managed to reproduce. And that was when we went, wow, you know, they actually grew from seed. And by that stage, we already felt like it was part of the part of the issue was um, the need to grow them from seed. So that, that told us, yeah, that's the avenue. So maybe problem one solved. They needed to grow from seeds. But how do you get seeds established in hard-set, weedy, thick, tussock grassland-dominated clays? By that stage, I think we also were aware of the work of Randall Robinson, Amanda Dodge and Debbie Reynolds uh, in looking at um, the need to do soil amelioration to help establish seedlings. Deborah Reynolds in particular had identified for grassland forbs, some loosened soil is really critical to allow the tap roots to go deep enough in the soil that they will survive their first summer. So that, that's a really key element. And unless you can get them down about 20 centimetres, that's why we often would see um, failure in, in our seedlings. Where this digging up of the soil was, it was sort of referencing the um, uh, Major Mitchell and people talking about the soil being incredibly fluffy and um, soft as they walked across. Um, so that knowledge that the soil had become hard and compacted um, and might be a, a reason for poor germination was kind of recognised. This included physically disturbing the soil, turning, ripping and also the digging mammals, bettongs and bandicoots. Another part of the picture we knew about was the work in the mid-90s by um, John Morgan about creating gaps in grasslands as being an essential component of natural regeneration. So he had identified you needed a gap of about a metre for the seeds to get established in the middle. Often we had weedy patches that we could spray out for about a metre wide, but it was kind of like, oh my God, you know, scraping out the kangaroo grass for a metre. I wonder now if you can guess what is coming. They need disturbance to get the tap roots deep enough into the cracking clay soil and they need gaps in the dense tussock grass swards associated with themata or kangaroo grass dominated grassland. It seems to be pointing to something that now to Brian is sort of obvious, but it wasn't then. And it actually took years to reach a point where the obvious started falling into place that a human element was missing, a human element that had become entwined in the ecology of this species. There was cultural significance involved with the collecting of yam daisies, which was usually done by the women with their digging sticks. Um, 
and as well as digging up the yam daisy, that disturbance of the soil, soil and sort of aerating the soil also helped to create, you know, sort of space for regrowth and for more moonong to grow. And what about those intertussic gaps? The spaces for seeds to fall and plants to germinate and grow without competition? Something is far more efficient than hand weeding or mowing. Well, fire was incredibly important to the landscape in maintaining and managing the land. It was um, used to clear areas and to encourage new growth um, and it was done as a land management practice um, for, for Aboriginal people. Brian and a growing community team found out fire had another purpose. We also learnt very quickly that survey of the plants in the weeks and months after an ecological burn was massively more efficient than trying to survey unburnt grassland. And that was one of those big sort of, wow, this is within a week, the Murnong leaves are present above the ground um, and they're flowering within three weeks. And we knew when, when we tried to survey in a, even marked plants in unburnt ground, they were would take us five minutes to find a plant, even though it was within inches of our hands. In a burnt landscape, you could see them with their leaves popping out within seconds. Yeah, so it gave, gave us a real, wow, you know, this is exactly the experience of a food plant. Unsurprisingly, another limitation to this project was funding. During the 90s and early 2000s, the team had been working on small grant programs with a budget to last a year or two, which meant that the funding for ongoing monitoring and maintenance was almost absent. Then a big grant changed that and enabled them to check the phenology or the flowering window, explaining why plants had been so tough to locate. Michael Longmore was a new restoration officer then and began working closely with Brian. We realised by working around the plant that it uh, didn't seem to respond to the same sort of life cycle as the more common Murnong plants. Microcerus walteri, um, Murnong is, has a more classical kind of daisy um, phenology. It'll flower in the spring, set its seeds sort of late spring, early summer and then um, germinate the following autumn. This one didn't seem to follow that sort of pattern. Um, we initially weren't, couldn't reliably work out when it was flowering. As we studied and monitored these plants, we learnt pretty quickly that the plants respond uh, extremely quickly to rainfall and also to disturbance like fire. So within a few weeks of the autumn rains was an ideal time to start surveying when plants were likely to have their flowers up. The plants are also extremely cryptic. They look just like all the weedy plantains and various other herbs that exist in these grasslands. And unless they're flowering, they're almost impossible to spot, even if you're looking really closely. Today, there are three known populations of Microcerus scapidura along the Merry Creek. Every plant is tagged and monitored, but it has taken a team of largely volunteers to achieve this. Merry Creek Management Committee and um, the Friends of Merry Creek, our our um, related volunteer group. We've worked very closely with uh, Wurundjeri Woiwurrung, particularly on this project, but on a lot of other projects as well. So uh, Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people were involved in some of the monitoring of um, remnant population through our project, the surveys, um, try and find more of these plants, and we're also involved in seed collection and seed sowing. 
From the outset, Mary Cree Committee were conscious of the cultural significance of the species for the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung. 24 years after the first attempts to translocate the species, Brian acknowledges it could have been done so much better because the goals and timelines of the Mary Creek team just weren't aligned. And those lessons don't just apply to traditional owners, but to all collaborators. I asked him outright, were there times he thinks he got it wrong? Oh, big time, yeah. Yeah, I, I, there, there are times that still make me cringe, things that we, oh, conservation, we've got to look after this, we've got to make sure we protect this um, species, you know, we've just got to get in and do it. And um, we would be sort of realise, oh, we've lost, we, we've got to go back and regain that relationship because we would overstep the mark or we would, um, we hadn't spent the time listening to find out what was, what was needed. Every time we would sort of go, oh, this will be fantastic, we would be told quite clearly, actually, that's not our key thing we want to get out of this project. And um, even doing joint projects with community, we, we learned actually we needed to give them the space and the time to explain to us what was needed. And spending that time listening is just absolutely critical. And it may take years to build that um, trust and um, knowledge. It's, um, it's definitely worth doing. Um, we've got to think in perhaps different time frames. It's, it's probably the key, I think, part of that relationship building. And it's worth doing, yeah. The other issue has been the start-stop nature of grants, which has limited time for maintenance and monitoring, but also meant the continuity of relationships was interrupted as grant projects finished. Mary Creek Management Committee has always talked about them. the project as a 100-year project at least, so um, we, we're probably over 30 years into it now and um, it's amazing what's been achieved, but um, we recognise the value of thinking in the long term. Um, it's not the way grant projects generally work, but uh, if you can keep that thread going, um, relationship building, yeah, can take years, but it's, it's going to be hopefully there forever after that. Today, the translocation of Microceras scapigera continues. There are a few hundred translocated plants grown from seed and protected from herbivores by cages and copper tape. But the populations are not self-sustaining and require ongoing maintenance and monitoring. Conserving this species, though, has been bigger than the plant itself. There is a wealth now of skills and knowledge about how to conserve many species that exist in these harsh, cracking grassland clays. Species that, like yam daisy, rely on fire and soil disturbance for reproduction and recruitment. This little daisy has also inspired many other projects that involve place, people and plant. I asked Charlie how Wurundjeri Woiwurrung feel about non-Indigenous Australians being involved in these projects. I think it. I think it's. Um, uh, I think it's healing for them. Um, I think it's. It it show, like for, for people to to take an interest in culture and what the history of this country is is you know important to Aboriginal people so that they can feel they can connect with other Australian people and be understood um, because yeah most 
most Australians haven't met an Aboriginal person or haven't engaged with one, and that's really sad. It's, it's a real shame that there is that, that gap, that divide. I think a really good starting place is to try and engage with the traditional custodians, have a con cultural consultation session with um, the uh, local uh, traditional owners and at least broach what you're trying to do and seek their opinion on if there's certain things you should be looking at and considering. It comes down to budget. Funding to include traditional owners as consultants with particular skills and knowledge. It's really important to consider them because unless they're considered, they're not, they're not put into the process when developing the budget. Um, and so, yeah, they need to be involved right from the start um, so, that, so that they can um, help with that process. And, yeah, like any consultant, they should be paid for their knowledge and for their time. There are no clear answers when conserving species of unknown ecology and nor are there clear answers about the best way for communities to work together. But hindsight can help. I am very grateful that both Merry Creek Management Committee and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung have graciously gifted the time to share how it might be done better in the future. What about Myrna? Or Yam Daisy? Or Microsera Scipitra? I asked Charlie what she thought its future might look like and her response was less about the species and more about place as a whole. My hope for Murnong along with other traditional foods and native species is that, that we can help to restore the natural environment and where there, there is opportunity to replant native plants and basically restore the natural um, vegetation to the area. So it's, you know, it, it's a no-brainer to me, really. We have our own um, NARAP team, which is our own land management team. So we are helping to bring young ones into, you know, the, the land management side of culture. And in combination with Western um, science and traditional knowledge, using that those combined knowledges to, you know, get the best, best benefits for the environment for um, Aboriginal people, for, for everyone really. NARAP now works along the Merry Creek to conduct cultural burns, not just for Murnong, but for the health of the grasslands and for all its species. NARAP, Friends of Merry Creek and the Merry Creek Conservation Group have achieved a lot over the past decade and give us some hope that this species and its habitat can exist in our urban spaces if we work together. Going back 15, 20 years, it was incredibly polluted, the Merry Creek. It was basically a, a tip and a drain. And the Friends of group at Merry Creek cleaned it up, have, have done a, a lot of work cleaning the junk out of the creek and restoring um, plantings on either side of the, the river. And to the point that we now have platypus back in the Merry Creek. And we also have, um, we've seen the sacred kingfisher return to the area, which we hadn't seen for many, many years. The clouds for the rain is Thank you for listening to Plant Heroes. My name is Chantelle and these stories are about Australians conserving plant species by moving them 
a method called translocation. The stories are part of a PhD and I would love your feedback via the anonymous survey in the show notes below or the website plant-heroes.com. If you don't like the content or want something different, please also tell me in the survey or you can just email me. Uh, the address is on the website. A huge thank you to the guests, Michael, Brian and Charlie for their time as this was a little bit of a rush job between lockdowns. And thank you too to the Australian Network for Plant Conservation and the Ross Trust who have supported this podcast and our accompanying video, which you can find on the YouTube Plant Heroes site. Our gorgeous song is courtesy of the wonderful Zoe Elliott, a local Aussie artist. You can find her details in the show notes as well. Until next time.